0: Guys, welcome to the podcast. Before we get started, as ever, remember that all the information you're about to hear is for educational and entertainment purposes only, and is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any illnesses or diseases. Please make sure to consult your healthcare practitioner before implementing any of the things we may discuss in this podcast. Speaking of education, if you're an exercise professional, coach, or anyone working within the realms of health and fitness, when you're done listening here make sure to head on over and check out our education portal at www.themusclementors.co.uk. If you like us and truly care about the well-being of your clients, about getting access to the best and most up-to-date information in the areas of exercise mechanics, hypertrophy, sleep, improving your online coaching services and much, much more, then be sure to join up. You'll gain access to endless hours of content focused around everything you need to become a true elite coach and get your clients in the best physical shape possible. This is all in the form of video lectures, weekly live education sessions and study groups. You also get early access to our podcast and access to any exclusive Q&A segments we do with our guests. The content never stops on the portal. It's not a one-off course. It's an ever-evolving learning platform designed to give you the best information possible in this area. Head on over to our website and become part of our epic community, full to the brim of other professionals who, like yourself, are focused on providing the best health and physique related results for their clients. Join us and them and gain the resources, support and accountability you need to become the elite of the health and fitness industry. For now though, grab yourself a pen and paper and enjoy the show.
1: Okay, ladies and gents, how are we all doing? Welcome back to the Muslim Metal Podcast. I am Luke Hoffman. No, I'm only joking. I'm not really. Luke is not with us today. Um, so today we have... Luke so, has passed away. Um, <laughs> yeah. That's, so, that's how uh, we're announcing it. Exactly. This is a commemoration episode for Luke. Uh, <laughs> he'll speak about all the great things that he's done. Uh, so, nah, Luke is away today, so we're not going to be seeing him. But we are joined by Mr. Meccano, Paul Standell, and the Queen of the North, Alex oh. Nailed it. We were he going to call, the 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 way way to call him the King of the North. We can't call him the King of the North. It's way too cool
2: a name. And the Queen of the North, I think for everyone listening, will agree, makes it sound like Alex is really into drag. Yeah. And I, for one, would like to perpetuate that idea.
1: Exactly. To be fair, that's it's true. true. I don't know what's behind me, so.
2: <laughs> I think you look great I'm, in the dress. To be honest, I'm
3: just going to get revenge and speed the entire podcast in proper northern, so you voice will come the whole time. Yeah. Leena Ross the conversations I have no
2: idea what you were saying. <laughs> proper, uh, it's already pretty northern, to be fair. Uh, how, how much actually, worse does your proper northern get? And actually, there's a video on this. Um, I'm going to try
3: and find a picture of me actually wearing a dress that I have from Halloween a few years back. i try and get <laughs> <thing or
1: something. laughs> an uh, I mean, it I like right the idea it, of it, with, it with, with a thick beard
2: and a strong northern accent as well. I think mm-hmm. that'll work. It, it, to be fair, it was Halloween.
3: Um, what was it? Me and my ex-missus were... Uh, Little Red Riding Hood and The Wolf. And obviously I was The Wolf. So I had four pound ch- like chariot chop dress on, full like head thing and slippers. And nice. it was the night of my life. <laughs> the comfiest night out you have hey, ever. Up.
2: Little Red
1: Riding Hood. Oh, a Little Red Yeah, she's Uds. She's red, red so <laughs> look at these teeth, Little Red Riding Hood. I'm, I'm not even going to try and do that. We're actually bad. Looking at this. I had something, remember the other day we were talking about how WhatsApp and the 1.5 speed thing. I had a client text oh. me I'm like, "I'm never listening to you 1.5 ever again." <laughs> even then, it's just way too quick. So I was like, "Right, I'm going to try really slow down on this." Anyway, right, so this episode is just going to be largely a Q&A, or as Luke gets to call it, the muscle mentor's perspective, which is just dressing up what a Q&A is, for the most part. <laughs> but it's nice and it sounds good. <laughs> so we have a good few questions and some really, really good stuff to go through. So we're going to try to get through most of them. And um, If we don't, if we don't, we will save them for the next episode, hence why a couple of Paul's questions are from previous episodes, a couple of mine are from previous episodes. So it's just a matter of trying to learn through which we can within the time limit that we have. So... First question is going to be from one of Paul's guys, and it's the hip hinge related question. So, Paul, if you want to leave it at that, we can crack on. Which question was this? That was hip hinge with no back involved.
2: Ah, uh, yeah. So someone asked, how do we do a hip hinge, presumably then trying to train the hip extensors? And usually when we hear that, we're thinking of glutes more than anything. Yeah, there's hamstrings. Yeah, there's addu- uh, the like, uh, adductor Magnus and Co., my brain's apparently not working at the start of this strong start and the explanation stuff. <laughs> but generally when someone asks that, I'm thinking they're thinking Luke. Yeah. And one of the hard bits we're going to have to consider when people are doing it is that, and you guys must've found this over the years and maybe listening, you find this yourself, that when you do an RDL, when you do a 45 degree hip extension, you feel your low back, you feel your spinal erectors, And this question is usually coming out from people who are like, how do I get it so I can feel my ass rather than these low back muscles? And so is there an exercise that has almost no low back involvement that still lets me get the glutes involved? And the annoying answer is not really. Right? There's, there's going to be some that involve a little bit less. It's pretty rare that if someone is executing a hip thrust, for example, or a glute bridge, that they'll be getting much in the way low back, though it can happen. Often that one tends to occur because someone is moving at the low back rather than anything else. But it's just as common for someone in an RDL or a 45 degree to feel their low back, even if their their execution of the exercise looks awesome. So from the external, we're like, cool, that low back isn't moving. They're moving beautifully at the pelvis. Everything looks how I want it to look. But their experience of the exercise is, I've got this low back pump usually it's because that area is kind of weak. Like how frequently does someone, when they're doing a, you know, let's say they're doing a deadlift and they're like, you know, I just feel my grip dying before I get it anywhere else. It's like, yeah, well that could be because you're super strong and actually going to need some straps or something because everyone's grip gives out before something else. Or it could be, and this is definitely true for beginners, that their grip is piss weak. (laughs) You haven't trained it. Ever, you're not a farmer, so it's not like you're screwing things in all the time. You work a desk job and you eat donuts. Your grip isn't particularly strong and doesn't need to be. And while it's the limiting factor, you experience the exercise most frequently in the limiting factor, the thing that's kind of giving out. And often people make this mistake of then not training the limiting factor to get it strong enough that it's no longer the point they experience in that movement. So if we're finding this regularly for someone in RDL, or a 45 degree hip extension. We might wanna spend some time directly strengthening spinal extension. So you can go on the YouTube, you can find some things on on spinal extension on the Muscle Mentors page there. Go check some of those out. Spend a couple of months deliberately training those movements and then bring that newfound strength back into the RDL and the hip extension and let's see what happens there. So the, the two main ones I find Within this question, are we moving where we want to move? That's a big one for a lot of folks. Is they're just not executing the movement how we would like them to execute the movement. There's still low back involvement. If we go in those things, there's still a moment to a shitload of those spinal vertebrae. So there is a challenge to all the musculature that controls those, and we can't remove that. So then the question is, are we moving where we want to move? Do we have the strength in the surrounding tissues that it's no longer limited by them, but is limited by what's my hip extension strength like? And then we can bring that in. And if we've still got things within there, we can look towards some exercises with a little bit less challenge to the spinal erectors, but it's still not zero. Even if we're doing something like, James put up on his Instagram the other day, uh, a cable restrained hip extension. Okay, we've got the restraint sitting around the pelvis kind of there. So we're taking away a lot of the challenge to those spinal extensors through that movement. But that then gets replaced, you're standing on one leg. There's a whole bunch of stability issues now on this particular section. Um, And we'll still frequently find, even with that restraint, that people wanna almost like hike their spine uh, and start moving at the low back as well. So there's no exercise that has zero requirement for stability in the surrounding stuff, in which case there is no exercise that has zero uh, requirement for the spine. It's mainly tick off those things and you'll usually be fine unless you boys think there's anything to add to that.
1: Yeah. A decent segue there is that there's that very common association with I feel my lower back, therefore I must be in trouble, you know, and Ooh, yeah, yeah. in reality, like there's this association, as I said, with like, oh my God, my lower back, I can feel it. I can feel that kind of almost pump sensation. I must be injuring myself. And I think, again, that's something that's kind of been planted into people's head over years is that, you know, if you feel anything within the lower back, it's a no-go. You must stop. You must yeah. not be draining. You must be doing something wrong. But you have to remember that a lot of the time the lack of exposure to load in that area comparatively to everywhere else over the course of anyone's training period even just everyday life is so minimal do you know that kind of way so that when you're able to kind of load tissues and you get that sensation of like a pump of that kind of somewhat pain you're like okay this is a good thing but as soon as that segues up to the tissues around the spinal like sense it's like no stop this must be something that's really really bad when in reality yeah. it's probably not so much bad as it is unfamiliar you know, yeah, I mean, I, I can't remember who said it, but
2: they're like, as a trainer, if you can make the front of someone's core ache, they'll think you're a genius. If you make the back of their core ache, they'll think you're a liability. And there's <laughs> definitely truth to that. There's also, and, and just to segue off, off what Ross said there, which is a, was a great point, that we sometimes hear this argument that you don't need to train those things because in RDLs and the like, we're holding an isometric against load and therefore they're being trained. And there is some truth to that, but Here's how that argument actually sounds. If that's true, why not just do bicep curls where you just hold a 90 degree angle? Why go through this excursion that those things can go? If that statement is true, then you should just be able to hold ISOs at some point in the range and that will be enough to train all of your muscles. And it's so obviously not an approach we take to anything else. And yet we've all gone, yeah, okay, that's fine. And and use that thing when it comes to the spinal erectors. And I've been guilty of saying that a bunch of times in, in the past. Uh, and I just think it's a bunch of horseshit beyond a certain point. Now, you know, if someone's only training a few times a week and they've got a limited time to get in the gym, then fair enough, We it might not be high on the priority list of, of shit to train. But it might be if it's an issue, if it's real weak, yeah, you're going to need to address that before you're able to just take advantage of the big stuff, right, which trains a lot of things. But if you're limited in your big stuff because of a weak link, we can't improve that weak link just with the big stuff because it's limited by the weak link. We've got to go solve that thing, bring it back, and, and then move on from
3: there. Exactly. Yeah. It's almost the irony that people try and protect something that gets it hurt in the first place. Yeah. I don't found this more in um, person PT as well. It's literally going to be exactly that. You put someone on a lift, and they get that feeling, they get that anything, and they're like, "Oh, no, this is immediately in me pain. I can't do this. I can't do it. I'm going to have to do something else." You just, you just
1: drop the bar on the floor, like, yeah, yeah. and they just look at you, and you're like, "What are you doing?" <laughs> <laughs> you wake
3: up the next day, you drop in that text, and like, "Oh, how is the body feeling after this?" Like, "Oh, it's great, but my lower back's really sore. Yeah. I can Never do that again in my life." Because
1: yeah, it's, it's, it's such like,
2: a common, like, such yeah. a common one for especially the low back, right? It's one of the most debilitating things out there for people, and we have such a fear of it. That We just don't train it. And then sadly, it gets weaker, which only increases the likelihood. So we've got this combination of fear of it and lack of training of it. So it, we're afraid of any sensation around it, which amplifies the negativity we experience. It's called the nocebo experience. We have the placebo, positive uh, outcomes from expectations. There is a thing called a nocebo, negative outcomes because of our expectations around something. And then it also gets compounded by the fact, because we then don't train it, shit gets weaker and we are more susceptible to those things. And so this isn't to say you should ignore all bodily signals. Absolutely not. But we might want graded exposure and gradually increasing that tolerance in someone rather than complete avoidance. And as long as that is done sensibly, that is going to be a much better path for most people. So that is a case by case. It's a bit vague because it's not a strict, well, you should definitely do this move or definitely do that. You might start with isometrics in one position that they can tolerate, and gradually increase the range, and then gradually increase some load. In that process, you know, one of my in-person clients, Ross, had crippling low back pain for like seven years before he came to see me. Not this Ross. Excellent uh, <laughs> name. Uh, he's a terrible human. Um, and you know, we had. It's not like you can ignore that as a trainer. know we had to take that into account he's got years of history of fear and stuff around there and an inability to move and his his nervous system locks down that stuff and doesn't let it move freely and so it it took you know a good six months to get him moving happily moving freely confident in his spine being able to tolerate certain lifts and movements and while it might not sound like a big deal to be like cool now he can rdl 60 kilos because that's not a huge lift by most people's standards. Compared to the fact that he could barely get out of bed, that's a huge progress, but it's a step-by-step journey to that thing. So yeah, I think that's, that's mainly the last thing I would like that.
3: People also have terrible awareness of actually what their spine is doing. And that's where you yeah. <laughs> spine extension properly. Because they, they, they assume the position they're in is like, oh, this is where I should be. Yeah. But they haven't actually moved the spine at all so they've got no idea where they are. Yeah. So where, think there, it they're neutral, and they're just standing like horrendously hunched over. like. How do you tend to solve that for them? I, um, I've, I actually found this really interesting about lockdown because I had someone who I actually still coach and train on Zoom mm. and trying to teach them this stuff without being there but being able to see them was really cool but quite a difficult thing to do and it's just slowly building up through movement they have available at that particular time and how you can actually work it through that movement so we we rigged up, if you picture a little stool like a little stool, one end's higher than the other and we had a boso over the top of that and I just got her to lie over the top of that and be like right hold this position. We're trying desperately cue through different things. Like, right, all you can do is hold here, stay there. Yeah. Like 20 seconds later, you shaking like a shitting dog and everything's going all over the place. Mm-hmm. And like, oh, right, that's all right, that's where you roughly need to be. Right, now let yourself relax over it by a few inches. Perfect, stay there, same thing. And you gradually start to expand that a little bit further. People realize where they should be. And then you go, all oh, right, okay. Now we're going to put this into a big lift. We're going to put it into a compound. Okay, you
1: want
2: to this is. Yeah. One of the potentially useful things that's probably happening in Zoom there is we've got this visual feedback. This is where it actually mirrors and filming even your client, if you're in person with this, can be really useful and show it and back. Be yeah. like, cool, they think they're doing this. Okay, don't initially, don't always immediately be like, well, you're fucking not. <laughs> 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 right? You can be like, okay, that's interesting. Film it, show it them back. You're like, okay, so this is what's going on here. So, you know, ah, oh, fuck. Because, yeah. you know, you don't always know what you're doing in terms of a person who's coming into the gym. You're asking them to do stuff that you guys listening know the words for. You know what lateral flexion and rotation involves of these things. You know the names of various bones, but most clients, they don't. And so we've got to communicate in their language in a way that gets the outcome we're after. And so sometimes that is like, okay, show them it. Just make it visual. People can, as long as they're not a blind client, will be able to see that particular outcome, they don't need to necessarily know the words to appreciate. You're going like, look, right, we're trying to move this bit and can you see you weren't moving that bit? Cool. And then give them another chance and then use the mirror and poke and prod them if you're in person. That is harder to do online. Uh, and as Al says, you know, sometimes it's useful just jumping on a, a Zoom or a live call to see if you can walk through just in front of the camera with them what's going on. Otherwise, you're limited, if you're an online coach, to video tweaking. Yes. Sometimes the positive part of that is More clients, at least in my experience, you find a few more advanced clients online who have better body awareness, and therefore it's kind of easier to coach them through certain things on Loom and that video style feedback. But there's there's solutions to these problems, but it will always be a case of testing your coaching ability. And if you keep using the same coaching cue, if you use the same cue, let's say three times, and it hasn't changed what they're doing, stop saying it.
4: (laughs) It's not (laughs) working.
2: (laughs) <laughs> right, you can't just keep repeating chest up. If it hasn't worked, you need to communicate that thing. And there needs to be clarity and you need to get back. You know, you can even ask them, like, what do you think I'm trying to get you to do? Like, is it that they think they're doing that thing and they're not, or they're confused about what you're asking them? You know, get some dialogue going with them so that you can clarify, what are they not getting? What am I not communicating well? Are they unable to do it or are they not understanding what I'm saying? You just need that dialogue.
3: Yeah. And this is a complete tangent, but it... This also fits into the, I'm sure you boys share a similar thought process that people to be a good online coach, you need to have experience on the gym floor. You need to be able to see, you need to be able to taught it or yeah. to have taught and not been able to taught it. Because then if you're just only able to write things down for someone, but you haven't got a clue what you're actually going to tell them, they're going to have no idea at the same time. Yeah. And you can kind of preempt stuff, you can start like writing, you need to put this here, this here, this here, this here. But you need to have actually been in that situation where you've seen it in the first place.
2: Yeah, because most of us get our cues initially from shit we read on like T Nation or something kind of back in the day, like they use this, they said brace, they said squeeze, they said pull down, they said put your ass in your pockets, they said whatever they said. And so you're like, that is what I will say to Sharon here. And then you try it and Sharon doesn't fucking do anything differently just because you've said those words. And you're like, if you've never done that with a person and gone like, this didn't work, how do I solve this? Mm -hmm. and you're just writing it, often you'll assume that, well, I wrote it, so they must be doing it right. Same as as an online coach, if you're not getting video back from your clients about them doing the exercise and you're just assuming, you wrote bench press, so they must be doing what you've written. (laughs) No. (laughs) There's no guarantee that just because you wrote that, they're executing in the way that you want. You've got to see that stuff back. Yeah. I suppose squeeze
3: is one of my most hated words in the industry. (laughs) Can you imagine just reading through a program and having notes and everyone just says
1: squeeze? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I was reading no, a programme that the fella no no, 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 no. sent me over for it. So I looked to the day and like all the cues were just like hold the squeeze for two. Uh, mm-hmm. I was just like <laughs> I was like, where? Why? Like, what is this? <laughs> uh, I didn't like obviously say to him, man, nor did I like, fucking tone it down in any way because the culture knows. I mean,
2: don't wrong. On um, like at the same token, if a client says squeeze to me, I will use squeeze back. Like Yeah, for that, sure. Like, like you the speak you speak in their
1: language, you know, like I'm, I'm a yeah. perfect example of me not speaking, not speaking to clients. I think you know.
2: Arguably what Alex means there is that it's not necessarily squeeze the word. It's just that we blanket throw it out as though yeah. everyone knows yeah. what that means. Yeah. You tell someone to squeeze them
3: and actually explain them how to contract to that tissue at the same yeah. time. You just tell them to do it and assume it's going to be fine because you yeah. can, yourself. Oh, I can tense yourself. <laughs> I can tense this. They can tense it. Tense it. What do you mean <laughs> you can't tense your pets? <laughs> what do you think I'm doing right now? I'm just trying to make <laughs> you- <laughs>
2: Squeeze, oh, squeeze, obviously. <laughs> you can assume I'm always tensing my pecs. I
1: just walk around in a continual no, contraction.
3: I like the fact you went for pecs, not anything else. You're on the
1: <laughs> street and be like, well, it's the same thing. So. <laughs> it's all muscles squeeze. It's
4: <laughs> Man, it,
1: it is one of those things that you do need to learn how to speak client's language. Like, yeah. Like that. And I think it's a, it's a good point to make is that cues are going to be largely individual to the person you're working with. Yeah, you may have some clients that you end up using similar cues with, but... If you have someone who's in front of you who is, for all intents and purposes, is isn't is its own person or are their own person in general, you're going to have to learn how to get that person to do something in a singular way. It's not going to be something that you can use universally with everyone because everyone's built differently, everyone thinks differently. You know, I can't tell you how many cues I've used that don't really seem to be related exactly what I'm trying to get them to do, but you do it and it works. Okay, <laughs> You know, okay, cool. <laughs> you know cool. it tends to be one of those things that, you know, you do end up crafting how you speak to people and what you say to them based off them um, individually, rather than the kind of cues that you're learning your PTs are. Yeah, exactly.
3: And you mentioned you learn cues from like teenage and stuff. You also learn cues from ones that don't work typically.
2: Yeah. <laughs> you say something, you yeah. say
3: something like, that's literally not what I meant at all. I don't I'm going to
2: use that one again. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Sometimes your client's just not listening. I remember once, this client had been with me for like a year or so. I was like, right, we're squatting, years back. And uh, she went and sat on the floor. I was like, what do you think we're about to do? She's like, to be honest, I don't
1: know, I wasn't really listening. I was like... She was honest. If she squatted to the floor, then she's... Yeah, exactly. Was no, right. exactly. this is not you what just, I meant. give me wrong, so... <laughs> so you're sitting there going, why does everyone think this is so hard? <laughs> I really like this exercise. Yeah, it's good. Right, moving on. So the next one, again, was from somebody who asked Paul, was the optimal range for a hip thrust or hip extension?
2: For a hip thrust? So right. there are... Then I think this person... It was like, there's so many differing opinions. And that is true. And as with many things, we could start with, well, what are we trying to get out of the exercise? And so for me, the hip thrust, it's not, no one competes in the hip thrust. To my knowledge, there's not a newfound powerlifting competition where it deals with the hip thrust, the lat raise, and some kind of monkey bar chin up. Like, there's no one's trying to create this new triad. So the hip thrust, we're thinking glute growth. I think that's 99% of people doing the hip thrust are doing it for that reason. So let's assume that. So then the question is, how do we keep this exercise as targeted to the glutes as possible? This is a hard one to try and fully describe on a podcast or on an audio format. And I think it's way easier to see it because it's going to sound slightly complex. So when we're in the hip thrust, if you guys in your mind's eye picture the top of the hip thrust. So your ass is extended, you groin fucked the sky. You're in a tabletop position up there. You've is, that got
3: your, is that one of
2: your cues? <laughs> I've definitely used it before, yeah, for sure. <laughs> <All> right. right. <laughs> <laughs> Again, you pick up your cues as you go along, groin fuck the sky, sounds funny. So we've got we've got this tabletop position at the, the top. Our, our shoulder blades, bottom of the shoulder blade kind of area is on the bench here. Ideally, I'm looking for a vertical shin, when I'm looking at where that foot is. So I want the shin straight up above the foot and then tabletop along that position. In that position, we have at least two lines of force that you can try and visualize that's pushing up from the floor. One's pushing up through the feet, that's the floor pushing up that way. And the other one is pushing up through your back or the shoulder blades or whatever part of you is pushing onto the bench. So these are our lines of force. But there's these invisible ones in this as well that aren't just pushing up. That's a result of friction. So if you imagine in that hip thrust, let's try and do it and put you on ice. How well would that go possibly for your feet? Well, if you're right up top and your shin is completely vertical, there's a chance you'll stay still. But the moment that shin starts to slide backwards, let's say when the ass comes down in the hip thrust, If you watch this on people and you look at their shin, you look at their tibia there, and you'll see it start to tilt backwards at a certain point, because as their hip has dropped down, the femur goes with it, and therefore the shin has to fall backwards. That now creates a slope along that shin towards the foot. That now starts to shove the foot forwards. If the floor was ice, the foot would piss off in that direction, and we'd flatten out like a pancake. Uh, as we did this particular move. And the only reason it doesn't do that is because the floor is not ice and you're not an ice skates. And there is some friction on the floor biting your foot from sliding forwards. And if your foot is trying to slide forwards and something is stopping it, there's a force going backwards. So we've got this combination of a backwards force and an upwards force acting on the foot. And the combination of those things creates this complicated sounding thing called the resultant The resulting direction of two forces acting on one point. And that guy from there, depending on how hard and how much of a lean we get in that uh, that shin angle or how hard you try and shove your feet across the floor, because you could shove your feet across the floor as hard as you could. And that friction will fight you back and fight you back until possibly you exceed it and your feet would slide away and you wouldn't be able to do the hip thrust anymore. But this resultant could end up being anywhere from bang straight vertical, no friction at all, or very minimal friction, to quite a long lean. And it is this lean of the resultant to the joints, to the knee and the hip in this instance, that is gonna dictate how much challenge is presented to either the hip joint, and that force is driving us into hip flexion, And so the hip extensors, glutes and co, are the guys who are in a position to fight that. Equally, if that resultant has come behind the leg, it would be trying to drive the knee into flexion, trying to bend your knee backwards, which means the knee extensors would be in a position to fight it. But then we've got the quads increasing their output to fight the knee thing, because unless someone has changed this, the glutes don't attach and do anything to the knee and someone's going to annoy me by saying, well, they attach onto the IT band and there's a thing going, yeah, yeah, shut up, right? That's not really what we're concerned with right here. We're going to go pretty standard on this, right? The glutes can't really do too much to, to knee extension. And so if we've got a talk demand man being presented to the knee, we have to increase quad output. And that's taking then a little bit away from, from the glute focus of this exercise. So if you want quad output in a, in a hip thrust, then yeah, you want a resultant that gives you something to the knee which means you might want to shove the feet forwards to create that friction fighting you back and shift this line of force. But I don't want that because we started with the idea that everyone's doing the hip thrust to grow their cheeks. So we want to keep these resultants, these lines of force with a big demand to their hip. So for me, the range of motion I'm looking for is a vertical shin. And then as we come down, I want you to come down, bring your hips down only as far as your shin stays vertical for. And that's gonna be a little different for everyone based on the proportions of their torso and their femur and their tibia. But wherever that range is, that could be, if you're watching this on video, it could be a really small angle that just comes from here to here. It could be a little bit of a greater angle. It's gonna vary a little bit person to person, but I'm using this line of the shin being vertical. And when I start to move away from that, I stop there and then control that back up. So if I wanted to create a really good chance for people, We can play with some stuff. If you ever come to the in-person camps, we will play with this kind of thing uh, for you and demonstrate it because they are best experienced in person, but we want to keep that vertical shin. I also would cue you to go, when you come out of the bottom of your hip thrust to go slower than you think, if you can go slow through that bottom face, as you get to the top, you'll find a really big challenge. And that's related to how fast the object you're lifting is moving. And again, that's best understood with some luggage scales and showing the difference in force that's applied to you based on how fast you accelerate or decelerate an object. But I have a video coming on soon. Um, so hopefully, that gives you some semblance and understanding. Uh, I will get a video actually out on this probably at some point with, with a human being in it because it, it's best seen, I think. But hopefully, that gives you something to jump off. For sure.
1: Definitely, That's really good. Right. So next one, we're going to move away from the <laughs> mechanics and anatomy stuff. So pretty <laughs> decent question. How do you know, how do you know what adjustments to make in the sense that how do you decide the amount of change? I'm sure that probably has something to do with nutrition. Um, And it's a good question because it's like, it's going to be very much, it's one of those it depends answers, you know, so for you example, say that question again? It's again, I've got to ask you, how do you decide what adjustments to make in terms of how do you decide the amount of change? I'm pretty sure he's talking about nutrition. Okay. Um, in the sense of adjustments to calories and stuff like that. So again, it's a it's a it's a vague question. It is vague, which is, probably, <laughs> which, is which is probably you know well, actually makes it quite a good question. So for example, the people I work with, you know, I have a I have a large client base of athletes at the moment. So the, you know, the changes that I make to those guys is going to be relative to multiple things. So for example, the proximity of the show, you know, that's going to be a really really big thing that makes the adjustments, you know, very much reflective of that individual as a person, you know. So. At the same time, if I'm working with somebody who's in the general population, potentially even someone who paused working with who maybe has a history of issues with their food, you know, the extent of change, potentially change at all, you know, that kind of way, that's gonna it's gonna be very much a reflective thing, you know. And in terms of how you decide how much, you know, you kind of need to ask yourself who's the person who's standing in front of you, you know, what's the goal that they have, and um, you know, how is this going to affect them? Have you got to a point where maybe you're seeing you know training performance drop off, maybe just general mood drop off? You know, you need to be looking at you know multiple avenues of making adjustments. You know, this is where. Having high kind of collection points of data is quite like quite a good thing, you know, because when you have multiple points of data, you have multiple avenues where you can investigate the necessity for change, rather than just like okay, I've got training, I've got nutrition, let's change one, you know, like it's this kind of like limited factor of change that you have. So you can also even look at
2: things like okay, what's physiologically possible, assuming a, a bunch of stuff, because this is still very much open for debate. There's one paper I remember reading a good few years ago, and I wish I could remember who it was by, but it was trying to look at what's the maximum rate you could oxidize fat from fat tissue at per day? And it came up with a number that I want to say was about 68 calories per kilo per day. So, you know, if you had, let's say, uh, 10 kilos of body fat on you, that would be 680 calories a day you could oxidize off your body without having to break other shit down. So theoretically then, and again, this is simplifying so much stuff, And it's definitely going to be an area that would be more interesting to hear Ross's thoughts on for assisted athletes because I suspect this this will definitely change Um, and then plays a a role in how do we even conceptualize that number then. But if that were true, when I had someone with 10 kilos of body fat on them, cool, 680 calories, let's round that to 700. Let's say their maintenance was 3,000. They could theoretically sustain 2,300 calories and not lose any lean body mass assuming their training was good, their sleep was good, they were getting enough protein, yada, yada, yada. But if that person then has lost that and they've got down to five kilos of body fat, that 700 calories now needs to be 350 before they would start losing the cool stuff they're trying to hold on to. Yeah. And I think we de- there's something in this idea, because we've all experienced this. When you're bigger and you've got more body fat to lose, you can go harder and you don't seem to suffer the same deleterious effect. One of the reasons will be just how much can we oxidize at any given rate. But there's also a whole bunch of other physiology and psychology in there that means you're going to be going slower as you get leaner and leaner and, and closer to that thing. So there's lots you could explore within that topic.
1: Mm. I think
3: it's most people listen to this are probably online coaches or in-person coaches themselves. They're probably going to be running check-ins week by week. So in terms of actually making adjustments to all these different things, I tend to go by a rule of thumb of if it's every week, the more things you try and bring in and the bigger changes you try and bring in, the harder it's actually going to probably be to do. Yeah. so for me it's okay so unless someone's at an extreme in a certain like a specific example if you make a massive adjustment to someone like say if you go oh it's focusing these 10 different things or take up this amount of food or add this amount of food it's been pretty flipping hard to do yeah people's like right have another thousand calories each day this week it's like oh sweet you get into day three and you're like shit <laughs> like i've been pooing four times a day i can't move around <laughs> too heavy all this stuff um so yeah i, I would simply understand that and kind of in terms of actual adjustments, so I appreciate it's a slightly different answer, but in terms of adjustments, less is normally going to be better. Yeah. As as general as you can be in
1: terms of a thing there, Um just to try and overall. When it comes to identifying what it is that you need to change, if you change three or four things at one go, the ability for you to then decipher, okay, what was probably the thing that I needed to change there within that realm is is quite difficult to do. Because again, like obviously. Paul kind of said my take on it. When I'm working with assisted guys, I could make multiple changes to people. So I could change people's nutrition, output, drugs, you know, and these are just me being realistic. I have multiple avenues of change for these individuals because they're working with A, a way, way tighter schedule than a normal person. You know, a normal person essentially has no time schedule unless of course they're going for some kind of holiday or a wedding or something like that. This is something that calls for a certain level of extremism, if you will, you know, that kind of way. So we have multiple avenues of Change here, so I can go and as I said, I can change some like lytics, I can go and I can change the food, and um, I can obviously go then and change even the anabolics and the kind of level of androgens that you use, and that's gonna have a certain metabolic regulation, you know. So, again, you kind of have multiple kind of means of going about those changes when it comes to somebody who's somewhat normal, if you will, like you kind of call people normal as compared to athletes, these people are normal. The best thing for you to do is to identify something that you can do that's relatively minuscule, identify the relative change that comes from that, and if it doesn't seem to be as much either go and look at that again, or potentially go and look at the other avenues and the other kind of things that you have that you can pluck down and make adjustments to and allow it to continue to move on. And if you're working, this is true for working with anyone really, but
2: we shouldn't confuse the fact that we made an adjustment with the client actually implemented the adjustment. They're different things and you're not just there. Some people are fine with you dictating to them, but that still even varies, even amongst the athletes. You know, I can speak for Cal for example. Like he's still, some of the high-end guys that he's got still aren't people who follow everything he says. And he has to engage with some of them in a way that accounts for that, that recognizes that fact. Whereas other people are automatons and you can very much be like, do this, 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 this. And they will do all of those things because they are more extreme. They've got more extreme goals. They're willing to sacrifice more of their life to the pursuit of this outcome. And that's that's fine. That's their choice. That's, that, that's okay. If you've got more of a, a gen pop person And that's an annoying term because Gen Pop covers everything from 17-year-old girl who's first time in the gym to a 35-year-old dude who's been training for 15 years, has six hours free to go to the gym a week, and all the way up to a 55-year-old office worker with arthritis. Like It's a big, broad thing. And so you're going to have to have conversations with your client and be like, right, I'm thinking, so what are we aimed at? Okay, we're aimed at trying to lose weight here. All right, here's what I mean. Let's say half a percent to one percent loss per week, kind of thing. How well is that going? Let's assume it's stagnated for a week. Well, if they're female, is it menstrual cycle kind of related? If they're, how much does that person fluctuate kind of month to month? And you're going to find a big variety amongst your female clients within that. I've got some who fluctuate a good couple of kilos and some whose weight you can barely notice any difference. They may as well be a dude in that consideration how much of it is, oh, they went out a bit on the weekend or something else kind of came up and and got in the way. Do you actually need to adjust anything yet? Or should you run another week at that? And then if you are going to make an adjustment, having that chat with them and being like, look, if we're going to move towards this, we could do this, 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 or this. And you can then give them some options and be like, which one do you think is going to work best for you right now? And oftentimes you'll get something back, which is like, I don't mind whatever you want to go with. Cool. In that case, make whatever adjustment you want. Sometimes you'll get back, like right, I could implement that, but that's going to be more difficult. If you've got someone who's already doing 15,000 steps and they've got a job, I probably can't give them much more steps, but I might be able to add in some cardio and might take some calories away. If I've got someone who's barely doing any steps and they've got some free time, maybe we add that in. You've got options, but you have to have that dialogue with them in order to even make them feel like they're listened to and that you give a shit about them rather than you're just telling them to do
1: stuff. So. Or even is there so again, kind of another, another kind of pointed segue, somewhat related in like, is there changes to be made at all or is there a potential adherence issue there? Or I always say, I always say, is there accidental misadherence? There's people who don't adhere to a plan accidentally. In the sense yeah. that they're miscalculating tracking numbers, they're putting things in, they're overmeasuring. And they've, known, they've no real recollection of doing it, nor do they think they're doing anything wrong. But sometimes it's a really good thing for me. The food it's just slipped in, you know, it's the old cheating <laughs> excuse. Yeah, you know, so, yeah, <laughs> it's in it. Yeah, you know, I don't know why. <laughs> yeah, it is. I've, I slipped on a pizza and it landed in my mouth. You know, it's just one of those things. But like, sometimes a really, really good option there if you find that you're making adjustments. Like I've often brought myself into a position where I'm like, if I make any, it happens with kind of females and I'm like, if I make any more adjustments here to food and the form bringing it down, it's getting pretty low. Yeah, But why aren't things shifting the way I want them to? I'm like, okay, what can I do here instead? And I'll bring a massive focus to actual tracking. Some of the things that I used to do is, okay, let's go, we're going to shift to chronometer for the week. And, you know, I would often, and with all front brothers, I would often dress it up that we're looking to find more mineral-based contents of food. In reality, I'm just looking for them to track a little bit more accurately. Yeah. And having that re-review of their food and tracking the exact same amount but actually doing it properly often means that they'll start to move in the right direction again. So something alongside that week just hasn't coincided with what you set them with. When they kind of restructure and kind of almost refocus and realign, you'll often find that starts to move forward again. There is oftentimes adherence issues that they can't see and you can't really see. And that sometimes you have to go kind of full inspector clue up and try to get in there and get it done. I like the idea of you as Inspector Clouseau. That was a strong. One. <laughs> I want to hear Ross's French accent. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll give you the What's the, Inspector Clouseau to go from Pink Panther. Yeah, yeah, that's that was also not be related. You know, do you know, do not seen the? the movie, I would like to buy an MBL girl. You know that one? is the funny <laughs> We never seen that one. It's the <laughs> Hang on, say it again. Say it again for the book. I'm not go. saying it again. I no, that everyone. You just nailed school. it. Say it again. <laughs> I know. I know it I don't need. I don't need to. I studied French in school. And I fucking failed miserably. Oh, yeah, oh, <laughs> 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 yeah, really. yeah, yeah. You
4: know.
1: I got kicked out a couple of times and failed that's, that's <laughs> but that's neither here like, nor there but it's just, go look up Pink Panther hamburger and then come back to me And anyone listening to this who hasn't seen that I expect you to be sending me lappy faces in the next like, 15 minutes the <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, oh. I feel like
2: we had some good questions on
1: bagels by the way we, we do go? have some pretty good questions on bagels but I feel like we should put a few more God. values in anything um, no, so I want I want a, <laughs> bagel <question. laughs> do a bagel question okay we um, had a
3: weird, weird little debate before we came on here about the best type of bagel, so We can continue that as well. So the I've best like, type of
1: bagel, it's not a fucking debate. No, it's, not. <laughs> it's just there's one answer. The answer is so no, nice,
3: it's, it's two on one, but I'm bigger than both of you. How many, wow. how, many,
1: how many people do you reckon sit down and go, Do you know what I'm going to have? A sesame seed bagel? I'll tell no, you. No, what, no, fucking, psycho, awesome. fucking psychopaths. Yeah. That's a psychopath. Joke. I'll tell you who. Nazis.
2: Nazis.
3: Yeah. They're basically yeah. the only yeah. people right. who. I'll, I'll, do, I'll do a salute on camera if it means I'm a Nazi. So <laughs> I, will, I will eat a sesame Sesame bagel. Have you that's had a sesame good. seed bagel? I want Jam. him to
2: shave part of that mustache. <laughs> and then...
3: this, took, this took me four years to grow. I'm not shaving any of
1: it. Uh. Would you, so if you had a, a cinnamon and raisin bagel and a sesame seed bagel, you picked pick the sesame seed.
2: No, it depends what it's with.
1: It doesn't matter what it's with. It does. It does. I
2: would, I would gladly it have... It might eaten... matter a little bit. If you're going to have, like, salmon and cream cheese, it's a bit yeah. weird on cinnamon raisin.
3: Egg, egg, eggs are good with weird.
2: cinnamon raisin. I'll give you that.
1: See, that's where you're wrong. It's not weird, it's brave. There's a, <laughs> <laughs> There's a difference. There's a difference. All right, right. I thought you're a pirate. Yeah, keep going. <laughs> you, all, you all lack courage It's the problem. <laughs> how many how many bagels can you fit in your air fryer, by the way? Uh yeah. two. Two two three in a push. <laughs> <laughs> three three if I really want to do it. When, when my food gets high enough, the ball I
2: just know how many bagels I can fit in. For those who don't know, Ross is a fan of air frying a bagel
1: doesn't it's just the most convenient way of doing it so very like if you unless you have the four-pronged toaster, so yeah i get it but i don't you know you know it not and um, one of the things that you can do is an air fryer to toast your bagels and genuinely. You can't say, by the way,
2: those who own a four prong toaster are rich when you own an air fryer. As though that's an <laughs> assault. I'm not going to
1: lie. I own a shit hot fucking air fryer as well. Uh, it is the dog's bollocks. You know like I It does amazing. Well clean. It you too. got
3: one of those ones with fins? Have you got
1: you a spinner one, you know one, one, you know one, one? You know the ninja ones, like the proper shit hot ones that are costing like 170, 170 quid. Um, wow. It's good. It's really, really good. Yeah, good I've at-
3: one it's about five years old, but the problem is, I put something in, it sticks immediately. I have
2: to have oh. a little bit but it broke. It's amateur. Tint
1: Also, <laughs> a northern <laughs> man has never
2: spent £170 on anything. Yeah, um, no, I have no. that on a holiday.
1: You possibly
2: spend that on that. 170 For an yeah. air fryer. Are, are you talking about pounds
3: or pence? You know I mean? <laughs> <laughs> I could
2: buy for that.
3: <laughs> 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 170 No, that's 6000 You that's wouldn't that's spend that on here. you.
1: <laughs> there's, a, there's, a, there's a famous thing in Ireland that people from Cavan are, it's a county that are really greedy. Oh, cool. it's, a, it's, a, it's a video the other day. <laughs> it's a fella walking up to a prostitute and he's like, how much is a hand job?" And he's, he's like, 20 quid, do you want one? He's like, no, I was just wondering how much I save if I do it myself. <laughs> 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 so good. Oh, very, very good. So good. Uh, uh, there's another bagel question and it was, uh, what's the point of the hole in the middle? And I, I always say it's wrap so you can wrap them around your finger and eat them off. <laughs> like something like I just thought it
2: was because they were that good, they were fuckable. And so they just made it. <laughs>
1: that's, that's so, that's so mingling. <laughs> like some kind of bagel based lollipop or something. <laughs> uh, Maybe, maybe maybe it's a call a Northern cock ring. Welcome. <laughs> <laughs>
3: yeah, two for one, two for one bargain. Oh
1: god! Okay. See, boys,
3: before you came on the team, I got no chirp for being Northern, and the new lads <laughs> came. <in. laughs> I, didn't, I didn't
1: even know being Northern was I didn't know. Like I still have no real awareness of like where I am. <laughs> I don't. People, I've been not, I've been sitting there before. and I'm like, oh, where do you live? Like Manchester, and like I'm like, look at the map. Like, if you gave me a blank map, would not be able to tell you where I am. America. Which is hilarious
2: because he could navigate the entirety of Middle Earth.
1: No, <laughs> oh, I could do <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, there and back, there. And I can tell you where everyone is. Give me a blank map, I can fill in most places very easily. Have you seen yeah. someone put the map of Middle Earth over the map of North America to give yeah, a, a shot? an idea of size. Yeah. where the journey was. Yeah, it's definitely yeah. Really, really cool. Yeah. <laughs> it's so far. It's so much longer than Bilbo's journey as well. I was like, oh, Bilbo was there. No, Sounds <laughs> <Time's laughs> real, real hero in the story. Isn't that a union measurement
3: in your life, Ross? Bilbo's. Right. Bilbo years it's like light years
1: but I think I I was saying this with the app where you use it to track your steps but it tracks you as the equivalent oh yeah your journey to Mordor Mordor. what's it it called? walk to Mordor walk to Mordor it's a Um, very cool app no, I'm, 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 I'm saving it until I prep and then I'm going to use it and basically just see how long it takes me. Can I walk? I don't in? think you're allowed to compete until you get to Mordor. I think that should be You have
2: to compete when you get to Mordor. Yeah, 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 exactly. That's, That's the time. rule. Have <laughs> <So, laughs> we picked a show? No, not really. We're just waiting till he's <laughs> near <in> Mordor. <laughs> the,
1: more, the Mordor Classic.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I'll be honest, that sounds cool. <laughs> sound bad. <laughs> sounds badass.
1: It sounds badass. It sounds badass. Sounds little. I'm, down, I'm, I'm downloading that now, too, fair. Uh, so it's so good, but you have the only problem is you have to track the distance yourself, it's not automated, which is irritating. Oh, that's annoying.
3: Okay, what, so you put you put distance into there in terms of steps? This is how far you've gone, yeah. So I
1: think you can, you can measure it in um, distance. So basically, like if you just track your steps on the health app, go in, see how far you walk that day, you can kind of just pop it in. Well, oh, that's a bit annoying, it should sink, yeah. Well, it is. So, well, Bilbo and it's all Bill Bill Sam, and Frodo had to suffer quite a bit, so you can go in and enter the details yourself. It's <laughs> 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 so, at, least, at least you can do to honor the greatest heroes who ever lived. Anyway. Have, we, have we worked
3: out, Ross, um, if we were all going to be the seven of us, seven of us, be Lord of the Rings characters? That great. was such a
1: northern. <laughs> 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 we worked out. We worked out. Lord of <us. laughs> <laughs> 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 the Rings. I'll, I'll, I'll learn eventually. Not Lord, it's Lord of the Rings. Not yeah, Lord of the Ring, Rings. I, have, I, think, I think we did figure it out. Who's uh, that? Was I fucking um, Gimli?
3: I don't know be, how that went no, out. You're like, you're
1: like fucking no, it,
2: Ross is Gimli. I thought that.
1: That, that's I'm actually my, probably, Ryan is
2: clearly me. Legolas just because he's got such a baby face yeah. well, I thought you said you were I was like
1: Whoa. yeah we first need to try to decide who's Barmere because that's so shit <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, we have a, See, I didn't just specifically use the fellowship Like James is Elrond and nobody can tell me that he's not <laughs> <laughs> no that's... one can tell me he doesn't suit being Elrond <laughs> <laughs> uh, I reckon Luke is probably Gandalf um, as much as I don't want him to be he is um, the rest of don't, don't really suit anyone. I'm probably I'm
2: totally that. fine with being Aragon at this rate. This is going well. We'll,
1: we'll put you as Aragon. we will put you as Aragon. Who am I? Because uh, so I don't think I not think you can claim to be someone. I think you have to be told who you are. You it's know, a good know? point. But I'm, I'm I'm the authority here, so I'm going to tell you exactly.
3: Yeah. Uh, <laughs> if I'm someone bad, I'm leaving. By the way, so.
1: What do you mean? Oh, you'd, probably, you'd, pro- you'd probably be Sam. You'd probably be Sam. me. Yes. I mean, yeah. Who yeah, he he complains about being Sam? He's literally doing it uh, all. Over yeah,
3: I can't. I can't swim. But I. I
1: can't. I can't swim. You actually. Yeah, we've, had, we've had this before. Whoa, 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 whoa,
3: whoa! You guys can't swim. No, no, no. Russell and I have with this, this very difficult disease where you can swim forwards and backwards, but you can't stay in one place. <laughs> treading, a, treading water is a myth. Yeah. But I can. It's not. <laughs> <laughs>
1: the very first holiday I ever went on with Grace, I didn't tell her I couldn't swim. <laughs> this is the very so, me and three of Grace's friends, and we got like a was those like the paddle boats that go out to the sea. Oh god, got, they're all like flying out, like going down the slide and all like,
2: Why and, would uh, you go out to going, sea
1: when you can't swim? swim. <laughs> I was like, how the fuck can I tell these people? I'm a grown ass man who can't swim. And I was like, alright have to do Well, it. step one, learn <laughs> to swim. <laughs> I was like, I'm going to have to do this once or I was i going to look really weird. So i done it and I just instantly <laughs> I was like, oh, fuck. I remember I was sitting there Grace was Grace, was struggling there. You to come in and save me and everything. <laughs> I was like, oh, I'm trying to go. With imagine you died because you couldn't have, you had too much pride <laughs> to say, I can't swim. I don't even, I don't even think I was a Grace like four or five months at that stage. And she had the oh. same movement around within that period of time. It was a, uh, it was a pretty poor move on my part. And you know, what? I still haven't learned to swim. <laughs> Can you ride a bike. I ca- of course I can ride a bike. Oh, don't, say, it, of don't yeah. say of course. Don't say of course of me right now. <laughs> I, used be, I used to be super in the BMX bike. And so, yeah, I was fucking going to ride a bike. And BMX and skateboard and done everything at one point. Right. Are we going to do another question? Are we going <laughs> to wrap it up? Because pretty sure I has to go. I, I I have a call in minus 30 seconds. Oh, I'm okay. I can yeah, stay for one more. What's the last yeah, one? one? Yeah, we can do one more question between the two of us. Uh, if you have to dip out well, you can. Or you can't say five minutes delay. Classic. <laughs> I, 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 I,
3: I've got another one afterwards so I'm going to have to say, you know, we're a very professional
1: unit so I can't blame for anything, which I yeah, never am. No, um, I love you. See yeah, you, know, you, you yeah, Does that pretty decent question on um, body dysmorphia Paul? we go through that one? Yeah, go for it. Yeah, sweet. So, um, body dysmorphia, do you feel people are usually more subjective and harder on themselves than how bad it actually is from an individual perspective? I mean, the short answer is yes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, in the I think
2: most of you listening will probably have experienced something like this, right? Let's say, let's say you start at um, 70 kilos and you're carrying a bit more body fat than you'd like and you're going to get down to 60, let's say. And at 60, you're going to be shredded and sexy and heroic. On the way, when you get to, say, 64 and 63, you're going to be feeling gradually more awesome about yourself. You'll still be like, oh, I'm not there yet, and this isn't right, but I'm really liking the way I look now compared to how I was. And then on the flip side of the diet, when you hit that exact same weight that you were really happy at having been <laughs> on the way down, you're going to be like, oh, my God, I'm awful. I'm some kind of pig human, and no one's ever <laughs> going to love me, right? And you'll mean both of those things. And the, <laughs> the, it's worthwhile as a coach, by the way, showing people that. If you've got their weight and their photos at, say, 63 – on the way down and then you've got the same ones when they're coming on the way back up. It's a good exercise to be like, see here, we were the same as here, but remember when you were really happy and excited about this and now we're in the same place, they look the same. And now you fucking hate it. So how come what's going on there? There's a thing about perception, right? So as, as human beings, we don't objectively see reality and there's a whole bunch of stuff we can look at within that. But for now, I think it, It's easier to think of it maybe in in these terms. So our emotional systems work in relationship to things that we value. So the reason we get hungry when hunger is working normally is because we have to eat so we don't die. So as we get further away from actually having eaten and we get gradually hungrier, this sensation builds up in us. Hunger gets worse and worse, but the worse hunger gets, the better it feels when you then attend to it. When you then move back towards it, it's like there is a reason that like nothing tastes as good as a donut or in Ross's case, a bagel as when you're lean and haven't had one for a while. Oh, it's good. It's the same as if you've been out for a walk and you have 20,000 steps and your feet are aching and you lay down on the bed that time you get in. Oh, that sensation is amazing. But if you've been laying on your bed all day, it's not the same sensation we get this positive emotional reward when we move towards things that are important to us and that we need. And we get negative emotion or negative sensation, embodied sensation, when we move away from things that we value. So hunger gets gradually worse, the more we ignore it still fluctuates because it's subject to a lot of different things. But over time, let's say within a prep, the level of hunger you've got at the start of the prep, isn't the same as the level of hunger you've got in the end of prep. It's going to gradually get worse. If you're sleep deprived for a day, you're quite tired. If you're sleep deprived for seven days, it gets worse. These things get worse. And the, the benefit to that is when you then move back towards it, you get this lovely hit of dopamine and of this positive affect because your body has recognized, oh, this dickhead has moved back towards something we need. Let's make it feel amazing. So he wants to do it again in the future. And then when we move away, we get negative emotion. Okay, so emotions work in relationship to a goal. Something we value, we move towards, it feels good. Something, uh, when we move away from something we value, it feels bad. It's complicated by the fact that we have conflicting values. Pretty much everyone here will know what it's like to want to be shredded and to want to swan dive into a buffet at the same time those two things conflict to some degree. And so we have to be able to tolerate some emotional discomfort if we're gonna get very lean and certainly on the way back out. But here's the other one that's really interesting is that human beings have what's called a negativity bias. We do not respond the same amount to a positive and a negative of equal magnitude. So this was discovered by Kahneman and Tversky back in the late 70s It's called loss aversion theory. And it was done with economic stuff. So they wanted to go, if we were to make you bet, you could win 20 bucks. I think it was something like that in the, in the study. How much, and it's on a coin flip, Heads you win, tails you lose. You win 20. How much, oh, sorry, you're going to bet. Let's say you got to bet 20. How much would I have to offer you to take the bet? So if we were betting, you have to put down 20 bucks or 10 bucks or whatever the thing was. How much do I need to offer you as an incentive for you to take part in it? And generally, what they find on average is that you have to offer double. So if you're betting twenty, you want at least forty back, or you're not going to bother. There's variance within people. Some people are more risk averse than others. So some people might need fifty before they bet it. Some people might take thirty. It's a rare person who'll take it for twenty. Right? They lose it. And again, at the extremes, it doesn't work all that well because, like, how much would I have to offer you to bet your entire life? <laughs> like, eh, I don't want to. I don't want to play the game, right? But it works for a lot of different things. The amount of emotion we experience in response to a positive seems to be about half of that from a negative. So if I won 10 pounds, it feels pretty good, but it feels worse to lose 10 pounds. And roughly, and if you're trying to gauge the emotional response here, it's about twice as bad. So winning 20 quid feels as good as losing 10 pounds. There's that differential between them. So if you won two grand, it feels awesome. If you lost two grand, it feels worse <laughs> than the winning kind of thing. If we apply that same idea now to this system where a person is getting away from being lean again, well, now we get that, oh, they were 63 kilos. And at one point when they were moving towards being leaner, which they value, they get in all this dopamine hit because they're getting closer. They're not there yet for a whole bunch of dysmorphic reasons, but, and actually you'll never get there. That's one of the problems with it. But then as they move away, that same position doesn't feel the same because we have this negativity bias. We we respond more extremely to that thing. So we've got that aspect to it. And we've also got kind of, as as we touched on, you're checking your body way more. When you start dieting and getting leaner, how many app shots is that? How many times are you looking in the mirror? And what are you looking for? You're not just looking for the good. You're looking for the bits you still need to improve, which means you're looking for your own flaws, and you see what you look for. And so there's this inescapable thing in bodybuilding that encourages dysmorphia to some degree, doesn't guarantee it because we can manage these, but we need to be careful with what we're doing psychologically. But you're deliberately looking for the things that aren't as good as they should be yet. So you see them. And then when you move away and you're in the off-season mode again, you're still seeing all the negative things, and they're multiplying, and you're reacting more to them emotionally. And voila, you hate your life <laughs> uh, and so that's kind of a little bit of what's what's sort of going on uh, within there it doesn't have to get that way but you do you almost and Russell will definitely have some thoughts on this i think you sort of have to learn to separate yourself a little bit from your physique and to see it a bit more and to some degree like an athlete sees their body or a mechanic sees their car yeah. yes it's important to you yes it's meaningful and you can't fully separate the two i don't think i don't think anyone has ever achieved that level of separation But if you have these massive emotional responses all the time and you don't learn to manage that in a psychologically healthy and whack manner, you're not gonna last beyond the first season, maybe two if you're pushing it and unwilling to change anything, and you will burn out quickly. So I mean, what do you
1: think? It's that inability to process. I think that you have that very, very commonality. It's like, you know, bodybuilding is a bad thing for everyone you know and i'm not i'm gonna be the first to admit that for a lot of people in fact i'd argue the majority of people it is a bad fucking move um right. if you have any like if you if you decide to go down this route partially because you hate yourself you know like again and you don't even need to you, a lot of the time the problem is is that individuals who go down this route of kind of trying to get me for a shoot or a show shoots are probably a little bit more timid if you will um, and they don't even realize or they haven't even agreed to themselves or maybe it's kind of subconscious they're doing it not because they want to but because they really just don't like the way they look, mm-hmm. you know? And it's this kind of concrete fact that it says, I now have to change, you know, that kind of way that there's some kind of like, you know, authoritative, I need to do this, this has to happen, you know, kind of thing. And I think that when you're doing like I'm doing it quite a while now at this point and I think one of the things that's always helped me because after my first show, I really struggled, admittedly, I really, really struggled. I struggled to stop eating. I struggled to kind of love myself. I had to spend a lot of time shifting what I really, really value within bodybuilding in and of itself. Um, yeah. You know, for me, I love bodybuilding, but I don't love it because of the way it makes me look. I love it as the way it makes me feel. Um, you know, and the ability to be pro- progress on all fronts, so to speak, is kind of why I do it. Um, and I think that's probably why I've never really looked at my body in any other way than, like, you know, it's a vehicle for that progression. Um, and I guess I'm probably one of the few lucky people who's probably able to do that, know, another kind of way I have that capacity, whether I'm on a prep, whether I'm on a diet, whether I'm in off-season. It is that progression capacity that tends to be the valuable thing for me. No, no, it's no, it's not going to be a case that I'm never going to get to a point where you know I do start dealing with issues. You know, I've I've kind of fully accepted it at some points. You know, I think it's almost an inevitability that, in the way towards that latter end and towards certain points, I think to say that you're never going to have a problem with you know the way you look in a sport that's so orientated around the way you look yeah. is a little bit irresponsible. It's a little bit silly to say that it's never going to be an issue. But again, if it becomes long standing, I think you need to kind of ask yourself, okay, how was my preparedness? for this, you know, and you've got people like Paul who are incredibly in tune with how to speak about these things of people. I'd like to think that I'm somewhat able to speak to people when they have these goals. I like have a certain client, a female client is quite young and, you know, the potential to go all the way is there, you know, but until that individual is able to love themselves and appreciate themselves and what they can do kind of within the gym environment rather than the way they look, it's just not an option. I just won't put them anywhere near a prep but I want to put them in a shoe because there's things that need to be foundationally put in place prior to that happened. And I think there are a lot of the issues that come from body dysmorphia issues when it comes to training, when it comes to bodybuilding, when it comes to shoots is that lack of preparedness, you know, and that inability to kind of be able to not so much um, kind of anticipate it, but, you know, know that these things are there, you know, understand that you can shift your focus a little bit, that kind of thing.
2: Yeah. So, I mean, <clears throat> to some degree, it's a really difficult one. And I think you even, you mentioned it for yourself there, that the first time you ever do anything, you can't really know what to fully expect. You can read a bit and you can hear people talk about it, but you won't fully perceive everything that they're saying or that they mean, because there is still a difference between intellectually understanding something and experiencing it firsthand. There is a gap between those two things. And so there's only so much preparing you can do before just finding out how well you do in that situation. Like as human beings, you know, we don't really know ourselves fully. We know ourselves under situations we've experienced. And that's a different thing. Like we all like to think we would behave like the hero in the story, but there's a good chance that we probably won't. And we're only going to find out who we are in those moments when we get into those moments. Now that isn't to say there aren't things you can do because otherwise that sounds a bit fatalistic. There are things you can do. They're just often ignored by first timers who are so consumed with no, but I'll just do this and then I'll be happy and then I'll like myself and then I'll, I'll do kind of whatever. So super simple task for anyone listening to this is just to write down all the shit that you think matters to you in your life. So usually this list is involving friends and family and your career and whatever hobbies you've got. And, you know, the way you look will be on that list for most of us. We're sexually selective species. And that means we're going to care how we look. And I don't think you can really get around. that. So you're going to write these things out. Then you're going to make two big circles, two big pies, as it were. Uh, And we're going to pie chart this. The first pie you're going to create, and it probably should have a different name, because it always sounds like when everyone's looking at disordered eating things, and we're calling it a pie chart. feels a bit on the (laughs) nose. Um, But you're just going to apportion how much of your life is spent thinking about or attending to each of those things. So how much of your brain space in your life is spent attending to how you look? How much of it is spent on your friends? How much of it is spent on your family? How much of it is spent playing that instrument you play? Or whatever the things are that you say you value by your own admission. And then have a look at it and go, is that the pie that I want to live? And you go, like, oh, fuck me, 50% of my life is spent thinking and looking about the way I look? Shit. I'd like it to be 15%. Okay, how do I close that gap? And then apportion the other pie with <laughs> How would you like your life to look? Okay, I want 30% of it. And it doesn't have to be precise, right? You get in the rough ballpark is all we're trying to do. Spent about my career and I want 20% free so that I can you know, hang out with my friends and I want 10% for video games. And I want, it's your life. You get to kind of construct it to some degree how, how you want to. And often you'll find a big discrepancy between that. If you're going into these things and you don't have anything that you're attending to outside of this, you will struggle most likely. Because you're creating your identity around one thing. And there's a risk at that for any one thing. You know, how many people do we see athletes who struggle when they retire from whatever sport they play? Because that's who they are. And they've stopped playing rugby now. They've stopped playing American football. They've stopped playing basketball. Whatever their thing is. And they go a bit off the rails because they've got, in some of these instances, a lot of money. And a lack of who they are now. They've spent their formative years being this person. And now they're not that. So who are you? Or what if, you know, some of the worst things that can happen to you, what if you get hit by a car and you're paralyzed from the waist down and all you were is your physique? Who are you then? Because those things happen to people and they're awful. And it must be such a struggle if any of those things happen anyway. But it's only going to be amplified if this is all you are. We see it for, you know, there's tales of mothers and things, too, where all they were is the mother for 20 years and they forgot to go and develop the rest. And now the kids have grown up and left. Who are you now? It's in your interest, much like investing, to diversify some of your assets so that you're not all in on just one thing. But then that comes at this other thing, because we hear some of the biggest names in our industry and in any industry saying you have to be all in. And there's some truth to that, too. It's just that that strategy is really high risk, high reward. If you've got the genetics for it, it might well pay off. You'll usually still find those people get to a point eventually where they learn to be a bit more moderate, where it isn't their entire life, but they often go through that phase. And it might be that we can't skip that phase. Who knows? But you've got to go in going, if I try this like that, it does come at a big risk. Less people make it than we'd like to admit. So I think it's in most people's interest. To develop a few more interests as well and because there's no reason that video gaming can't be a big part of your life at the same time as bodybuilding for the record right you don't you're gonna have some free time within all of these things so it's about cultivating those other facets because when you come into the off-season mode where dysmorphia is going to really kick in having something to focus on that matters to you that is outside of your physique is really really useful if that's all you've got, all you're going to start seeing and responding to is the fact, oh my God, I'm fatter by the day. And that's going to be really difficult for you. It'll still be kind of challenging. I promise the first time or two you go through an off season, because you've, if you didn't value being really lean, you wouldn't have spent all that time dieting for it. And so now you're moving away from the thing you just spent really a load of time saying you valued because that's what you did. And so that's going to be difficult, but you can manage it in better ways than others. I actually re- need to re-upload the um, – so I have a, an ebook on this topic uh, called The Almost Inevitable Problem of Anxiety and Dieting, or How to Not Fuck Yourself Up While Getting Very, Very Lean, uh, which actually needs to be – I need to speak to Luke because that needs to be re-uploaded to the website. Um, but you could check something out like that as well because it, it is uh, a bit of a story about all these things. It goes through the psychology and the physiology of why these things come to pass. And then it's a bunch of strategies that you could use to try and help yourself so that it's not
1: inevitable. It's almost inevitable. next an excellent resource. Read it while you're dieting. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's what I plan on doing. I said that to Carl a couple of weeks ago. I've, uh, I've already touched on it. And I was like, you know, when I do get to a point where I'm dying, I'm read that book alongside it. Little things like that. Do you know what I mean? I do. Like, I'd be somebody now. Who would fall into that bracket or who would almost have fallen into that bracket of kind of given everything to that bodybuilding endeavor and you know when i'm not doing bodybuilding i'm coaching bodybuilders <laughs> you know that kind of way and your thoughts are going kind to of orientate it around an awful lot And it's me, really like i would have been a year ago i picked up video gaming again yeah. i hadn't i hadn't picked up a video game in a really really long time for a really long time i used to be super super into it i used to be super into a couple of things martial arts fucking extreme sports and it all kind of went out the wayside and My ability to kind of comprehend myself so far as like what I'm doing now in bodybuilding, which is still something I'm very, very passionate about coaching is obviously everything to me. But now that I have these kind of multiple avenues of interest, I find it a lot easier to deal with these things in another kind of way. And, you know, it is definitely something that I don't think people who truly do go all in, so to speak, you know, can really understand the value of until they kind of maybe take 1% of that and put it into something else. You know and I maybe? think
2: sometimes sometimes that might be a necessary step you know yeah. what it's makes us doesn't
1: it, it, really? yeah
2: like it, it's really common for people who've come out the other side of something to presume that uh, if they just warn people that they can stop them going through the process but I'm not convinced that that works I think people still need to go through that a little bit sometimes themselves we might be able to speed it up a little bit and stop them getting so lost in the weeds but often people do need to go and do a bit too much of it because also how do you get really good at something if you're not kind of close to all in sometimes so there's a balance to this and that's why i'm unwilling to say that we shouldn't go all in as much as one can be all in sometimes because that would be a mistake there are success stories out there who are like that it's just that there's also a bunch of these bodies by the wayside that you never hear about having done the same approach and we have to except for
1: both and consider those in our thoughts, especially if we're coaches. Yeah, especially if all in can be different to one person compared to another. Yeah. All be, like all in could be going in, could be going all in on your ability to manage going all in, you know, be, yeah. you give ev- your everything or at least as much of your everything as you possibly can to something. Sometimes as Paul said, a necessary evil is to then give something else the attention it deserves. So that all in nature doesn't go against you in the end. But you can look at people in, in bodybuilding who've gone all in for so long in their life and, you know, they get to a point now where they separate. Dorian Yates, perfect example, you know, doesn't bodybuild anymore and now just, like, goes to fucking, like, goes to do ayahuasca in the woods. Do you know that kind of way? Like, if he goes uh, out and does yoga and stuff, do you know, like, no, that's not a bad thing. But, like, the inevitable byproduct of his all-in nature is a zero-in nature at this point. You know, that kind of way. And again, you can kind of look at that as, I wouldn't say it's a negative thing, you know, because he's obviously been incredibly successful. He continues to be incredibly successful. Do you know that kind of way? But it is, I think, one of those things where you're, how you conceptualize what all in is or how you conceptualize what effort is and then how you direct those efforts so for me you know separating my attention away from bodybuilding and coaching is part of my effort to be the very best I could possibly be at those two things yeah that kind of way and that's something that's a non-negotiable for me if I gave absolutely everything to it the anxiety I'd have on I'm not doing it would be absolutely it would be, be massive you know that kind of way and now somebody would have a history of kind of and, you know, currently still does deal with a little bit of anxiety at times, do you know, mm-hmm. I know for a fact that that would have been something that would have really came down on top of me at one point or another, do you know, that kind of way. So it's, again, I think it's a, uh, it's something that people ought to look at, you know, and that exercise that Paul's talking about, do it and see what happens because I do it the other day. And um, when you put it up and I, something cropped up in me and admittedly, it was actually time I was spending with my family and, mm-hmm. and uh, texting and communicating with my family is way lower than what my values say they are. So I've had to shift that this week because I did, I kind of sat back in my chair, I was like, Jesus Christ, and you know, I, I go back in the past couple of weeks, and you know, my mom's ringing me, and I'm missing calls, and like they're they're my very very close close family, my little sister's pregnant you know, and that caused me to take a setback. I was like, well I need to look in, you know reframe this a little bit, and you know, admittedly, you know, we, I think people look at us and the energy you kind know, of authorities with our heads screwed in all the time, you know, they're like, going away. Reality, we don't, <laughs> you know, I winged it for ten years and have not new so it's some of those things, like. It, it's it's just something that you know I would definitely do it. You know, uh, the only reason I'm going to continue to talk about is because I did look at it the other day. I was like, Jesus, you know. Yeah, and there are ones that
2: you could you know, they're worth some of those exercises are worth doing every couple of months, kind of thing, just to check in with yourself because it's so easy to casually drift away <laughs> without noticing. Because you you're, you're, you know, you're usually engrossed in things. You're not intending to stop attending to things. It just happens because you. I was doing this and I was doing that. And then, and then you're like, ah, shit, I've been a terrible friend for the last six weeks or whatever that thing is by your own admission. And then you're like, okay, I want to, I want to go and change that. And then you put it in place. And generally then you're like, okay, no, that feels better. And I'm glad I did that. And it's like, cool, perfect. It's good, Daddy. All
1: right, mate, we can probably talk all day. We'll probably wrap it up, I think. <laughs> yeah, that sounds good, mate. Yep. Danny, well, anyway, guys, thank you so, so much for listening. Um, really, really appreciate it. It was obviously a bit of a different episode because, you know, Hugh wasn't here, but I think we've done pretty well. So, anyone who wants to learn a little bit more about what we talked about, or if we answered any of your questions, you want a little bit more information, reach out to myself, reach out to Paul, come on the portal, come on the support group, and we'll be happy to chat with you. Anyway, guys, yeah. have a great day. Have a lovely weekend. We'll chat with you very soon.
4: Thank you for listening to the Muscle Mentors podcast. Just a quick shout out to our sponsors who support the channel and everything we do in the realms of education and coaching within the industry. Firstly, our original sponsor, supplement needs they've been with us from the start if you're seeking the highest quality supplements on the market particularly organ support and health orientated products you can use code muscle mentors at checkout for 10 percent off your order precision prep our recently introduced food preparation partner delivering the finest quality meal prep across the uk featuring their new pro prep range a concept closely developed with us To solve an issue we see day-to-day with time limitations and nutritional compromise. If you're seeking the highest quality nutrition delivered to your door for the best price, look no further. Use code MUSCLEMENTALS at checkout for 15% off your first order and 10% thereafter. And lastly, Optics, the highest grade blue blue light blocking glasses on the market with the slickest style. In a world filled with artificial light, particularly those with high screen time, I can certainly say I'm one of them. These can be a real game changer for sleep quality and recovery, something we use personally on a day-to-day basis. Grab yourself a pair by using code MUSCLEMENTALS at checkout for money off all orders. Once again, thank you for your continued support. Until next time.